Hey, Jay, is Mariko Yoshida still alive? Well, Miles, I wouldn't exactly describe her as still alive, no. So she's dead? Not anymore. I should have seen that coming. By this point, yeah, you really should have. So how'd she die? Ninjas? Indirectly. Uh, Matsuo Tsuriyaba, that's the guy who arranged for Psylocke's body to be swapped with Quanins and their memories mixed up, poisoned her, then Wolverine killed her to spare her a lingering death. He does that a lot. Which one? Both, come to think of it. But she got better. Oh, eventually. First she went to hell. One L or two? Two, unfortunately. Aw, oh, dang. Why'd she go to hell? She was nice. She was also a crime lord. Ugh, fine. And so then she got better? I mean, eventually the hand resurrected her, and eventually she shook off their control, but she was in hell for a pretty long time. I bet it got boring. When she wasn't busy torturing Wolverine. Wait, when was Wolverine in hell? Oh gosh, uh, late 2010, early 2011. Are you sure? There were definitely Wolverine comics coming out then. Well, there was a demon running around in his body. So how'd Logan get the body back? Started a riot in the afterlife. What? I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 282 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to an episode full of many, many things, but one that I am extremely excited to talk about. Before that, though, a non-X, or rather tangentially X-related plug, you may be familiar with the name Matt Hunter, because we say it every single episode in our closing credits. He is the guy who is responsible for making us sound so good. He produces our show. He is also a really, really good musician, and he just dropped an, a new album. Yeah, it is a self-titled album by his new project, Moon Talk, and it's really good. If you like synthwave or chillwave or synthy-80s-y goodness, you should totally check it out. It is an extremely, extremely good soundtrack for sort of calmly but focusedly skateboarding through cyberspace. Which, I don't know about you, but I do that on a daily basis. I mean, I work in IT. That's, that's my job. I literally just do all my writing on hackertyper.com. Legit. It's extremely hard to edit afterwards. Hmm. Editors are important. It's true. So... There's some other stuff going on, too. We've, we've just gotten, at least as we're recording this, um, one of the next X titles announced, and that is X Factor by Leah Williams and David Baldion. I am so excited about this book! I mean, I love those creators, I've loved every incarnation of X Factor, and the idea of an X Factor investigations in the new Krakoan paradigm is going to be stellar. Also Polaris is in it, also Rachel Gray is in it, yay! It's a good lineup, and it's a good lineup in the hands specifically of a writer who is very, very, very good at writing historically underserved X characters very well. I should note, too, that two of our favorites from Extremists are also going to be back, namely Fred Dukes and uh, Northstar. Yay. Oh, it's so good. My only complaint is that I... I'm running out of money. There are so many X books right now, and, like, I I'm really enjoying almost all of them. Yeah, it's very 1996 in here. Yeah, but, uh, uh, better. 
significantly. Speaking of, well, 96, 95, thereabouts. So I think, I think we're being a little hard on, on this stuff just because it's what we've been covering. Uh, either way, we do need to give at least a brief recap so we can catch folks up with um, what brings us to the issues we're covering today. So what's been going on? Previously on X-Men. Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters has relocated to Boston under the direction of the White Queen and Banshee. Meanwhile, the old school still in Westchester has been rechristened the Xavier Institute for Higher Learning and will presumably be hosting a series of mid-90s stoner comedies. That sounds pretty good, but what we're mainly seeing at the Institute is superhero stuff, soap opera stuff, super science stuff, so kind of the same things we were seeing before the name change. I will point out that not a single one of those is incompatible with mid-90s stoner comedies. Valid point. Meanwhile, the mostly but not entirely mutant-targeting AIDS allegory, the legacy virus, is still going strong. And while Professor Xavier and Moira McTaggart have been working on it from Scotland, Beast, Hank McCoy, has been doing so from the United States. He hasn't had much luck so far. Hank isn't the only one of the original X-Men facing down a quandary. Iceman's body was recently taken for a joyride by the then-comatose White Queen in an attempt to check on her students, and in the process, she used his powers in ways he'd never even considered. Bobby's been handling this pretty poorly, more the power usage part than the possession part, surprisingly. He's been asking himself, has he just been lazy, incompetent, unfocused? Well, I mean, a little maybe, but still, I sympathize. Look, we can't all be accountants. Two of the other O5 are doing great, though. Cyclops and Jean Grey, newly married, in this timeline anyway, have moved into the school's boathouse and are being all romantic and stuff. Good for them. And actual Hawk Archangel has moved on from brooding and is proving remarkably well-adjusted in both his life and his ongoing flirtation with the other radically body-transformed member of the team, Psylocke. Not at the school at all is everyone's favorite third Summers brother candidate and likely 90s new metal frontman, Adam X the Extreme, a possibly alien mutant with mysterious motivations who can set people's blood on fire. Wonder what he's up to. We'll get to that soon, but first, X-Men 38, Smoke and Mirrors, written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Matt Ryan, and colored by Kevin Somers. So, as with last episode... We've kind of got a bunch of relatively quiet issues here that are pretty much rehashing, going over, and resetting the status quo before launching into one big event that's going to be the lead into another big event. Oh, so many events in the 90s, and kind of so many events in the present day, but at least fewer. Here we not only get, you know, those brief cameos and spotlights on characters, but each of them is, is headed and labeled by the character's name, so you know that's what's going on. So I actually really like this approach in this era of X-Men. The stories all overlap really well. Like, there's usually something tying one of the couple-page stories to the next, to the next, to the next. And it makes the school feel like a a cohesive setting. And honestly, at this point, given that X-Men and Uncanny X-Men are basically one book with two creative teams, it just makes the world feel very lived in, you know? Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Now, as you'd mentioned, Hank has been nose down in research on the legacy virus. And he has been devoted to this clearly to pretty much the state that Xavier and and Mara McTaggart had driven themselves, which is to say well past the point of doing anything useful. Nicieza writes excellent beast in general, and here 
it's such a believable version of that very specific state where you're so burned out that you're no longer getting anything done, but you still can't bring yourself to stop. And I really appreciate the way that comes out in the way that Hank talks to himself. Because Hank talks to himself a lot, but it's interesting seeing almost an element of mania creep into that constant monologue, like more and more and more humor that is clearly just him covering up his increasing anxiety and depression. I really like the fact that those mannerisms and that monologuing is very much a performance not only for the world, but for himself. Oh yeah, that's that's Hank McCoy to a T. It's also worth noting that Hank is apparently by this point privy to something that had been a secret between Charles and Mara last we saw, which is that Moira McTaggart has at this point become the first, well, now we know ostensible, but then as far as we knew human, infected with the legacy virus. And that's helped him come to at least a minor breakthrough, which is that the legacy virus now exists in at least three different versions. And just like so many other bits of legacy virus science, just like everything involving what the actual prize was for the upstarts competition, it never really comes to much. Well, there are three different strains of the virus. That's really the only relevant detail. It's getting more complicated. He was able to get to this information, by the way. This specifically, this revelation is the only payoff from the information that Gene and Scott brought back from the future. Yeah, hooray for meandering plot lines. What this does do a pretty good job of, even if it doesn't go somewhere, you know, specific in terms of epidemiology or narrative, is make it clear how perennially and completely overwhelmed Hank, Hank is by this, which honestly, I think, is more effective than anything else at, es- at establishing it as a very clear and very serious threat. Yeah, I mean, if Hank and Xavier and Moira can't lick this thing, like, that bodes very ill. At that point, it's Corbeau or nobody. And Corbeau is probably busy in space with space stuff or saving the world in other ways. We're not sure. Um, Yeah, this is... This is Hank, and Hank in this era in particular is a really good study in how poorly Hank McCoy handles helplessness or perception of his own helplessness. It kind of reminds me of, I don't know, like gifted kids who get so used to just being amazing at everything that when something finally stumps them, and by them uh, in this case I kind of mean uh, us to a degree, um, it can be really frustrating to to deal with that that failure, essentially. Right, so you make, you know, devil's bargains with Sinister and so forth. I know how I got through college. I do the first half of what Hank is doing here, which is just throw myself at things more and more and more. But neither of those, you know, one of those does get things done, and it's not that one, so, you know. Now, this is sort of the the state of mind and state of frustration and desperation that kind of leaves Hank poised perpetually one fewer friend or one bad day away from supervillain. And in this case, the friend in question is Bobby Drake. And much as Bobby may care about Hank, he's not really accessible to help anyone else right now because he's still really struggling with his own feelings of inadequacy after Emma basically took over his body and then showed him up in front of everybody. And Beast is... Not there for his friend. He's too messed up by failing to make headway with the legacy virus, and he basically tells Bobby, sorry, man, I got stuff to do. Well, he does this when Bobby is saying that he's just trying to get Hank to come have some fun with him in the pool. 
later on, Bobby is going to go to Hank and talk frankly about what's going on. And that is actually going to be what snaps Hank out of it. He won't do it when Bobby says, you need to get away from your research, but he will do it when Bobby says, I'm kind of falling apart here, bro. Direct communication. X-Men, take a note. You know that they had to do it in person, though. Like, they couldn't do this over a phone. Phone? What the hell's a phone? Exactly. Now, between those rebuffed by Hank, Bobby decides that he will head off to the pool to hassle Rogue, who's got troubles of her own with Gambit, and who is not amused by Bobby's kind of asshole-ish grasp for both attention and reassurance. Yeah, and I mean, even as Bobby's attempting vaguely kind of to be honest about his needs, I mean, that doesn't stop him from turning the entire swimming pool into ice right before Rogue dives into it, after telling him to please not turn the entire pool into ice. Also, if your line of venting is, no one else can possibly imagine what it's like to be able to feel someone else in your head thinking thoughts that you would never think, and how that can impact your self-image... Rogue is not the person to vent that to. I feel like this isn't the first time this has happened with Rogue. Like, she has a habit of being in situations where people just forget how much trauma she's dealt with. And I think part of that may be, not that she hides it really well, because I don't think it's that, but just that that brash, fun exterior, I think it sort of distracts people. I think they figure, oh, well, if you're acting like that, then probably everything's fine inside, right? And with Rogue... No, that's not the case at all. It's both of those things for her. I mean, I think it's also that people who are depressed and in states of crisis tend to be kind of fundamentally solipsistic. Yeah, well, there's that too. Anyway, Gambit, who is the subject and context of a lot of Rogue's current crisis, is dealing with his issues in a very, very different way. Cyclops has been supervising Sabretooth's latest exercise session in the turned-mostly-down danger room, and Gambit makes up some bullshit about Jean requesting Scott's presence and takes the session over. And when he does, he immediately switches the danger room difficulty all the way up, turns the safeties off, and after a few minutes of that, heads down to kill Sabretooth himself. But he doesn't. And he doesn't even, when he has Sabretooth at his mercy, say, Bang! You dead! which is very odd for Gambit. Yeah. This is this is sort of Gambit having... This seems like more of Gambit testing himself than Gambit threatening or testing Sabretooth. Like, he gets... It, it's clearly got a warning in there. He gets to get Sabretooth to a point where he could very clearly kill him easily, or Gambit could very clearly kill him easily, and doesn't. But the pulling back is seems to be more something Gambit's doing for himself than anything else. Sabretooth, who's trying to goad Gambit into killing him, seems to have a pretty good idea what's going on in Remy's Cajun and or Creole head. What are you afraid of, boy? Me spilling something more... sinister? And that is, of course, referring to the fact that what Sabretooth knows is that Gambit was involved in organizing the Marauders for Mr. Sinister's mutant massacre. The X-Men do not know this, and specifically Rogue does not know this. Gambit's also got a lot of additional backstory with Sinister and may or may not be a partial clone of him, but those are largely irrelevant to this particular exchange. I don't think that's in the Earth-616 uh, universe anyway, but yeah, it's complicated. I really appreciate that even this early in continuity, like, 
the Mr. Sinister Gambit connection is already being laid down because so much of Gambit's backstory has just been random stuff that the writers, especially Lobdell, seemed like they would just get to later. Like, of course Gambit and Wolverine have a bunch of backstory. Of course Gambit and Yukio have a bunch of backstory, but this is an actual specific plot line that was planned. I'm so excited. Gambit, my original character who's super cool and knows everybody going way back. I mean, I would say Chaos, but no, Chaos didn't know anybody going way back because he was from a D&D world. Chaos was also written by someone who was extremely aware of exactly what they were doing by writing Chaos, which helps tremendously in that circumstance. Chaos is the gift that keeps on giving. We covered him so many episodes ago, and here he is again. Well, he's such a delight, and he's so specifically a very specific geek dream come true... And Skolnick has been so delightful in talking about that, frankly, in interviews and stuff. I I, I feel like you, kind of, you just kind of got to love Chaos. And also, also, and I think most importantly, he showed up in a one-shot and that was pretty much it. Legit. Legit. Well, who also shows up in this scene is Rogue. Yeah, Rogue shows up, catches the end of Sabretooth and Gambit's conversation, and tells him that based on that and what she's been thinking... Uh, they need to deal with their own baggage before they can work things out between the two of them. So she's going to head off to have a limited series, which we covered in episode uh, 245. Meanwhile, we have some additional sparring going on. But on the astral plane! That's right, Jean and Psylocke are training specifically in astral combat, because Betsy has, in in sort of re-coalescing her consciousness and kind of losing the quantum parts of herself lost some of her telepathic ability and at least some of the intuitiveness of it. And I really appreciate this mentor-student relationship that exists simultaneous to them kind of working out their shit. Because, you know, that whole Scott-Jean-Psylocke love triangle, that wasn't all that long ago at this point, and it was never really resolved. So, you know that meme image of the guy with the girl who's looking at another girl? Uh, yes. And you know the stock photo set that it comes from and sort of where it goes, right? No. It ends with the two girls together holding hands. I thought it was in Psychic Combat. Well, that too, but I, I sort of think of, of, of this whole sequence as, as kind of that evolution. <laughs> nice. I also want to point out that um, Betsy has a snazzy new haircut. It's much shorter now. Uh, she mentioned that she was sick of being showed up by Warren's amazing hair. I 100% get that. <laughs> yeah, well. I identify hard with Betsy here. <laughs> I mean, what can I say? My blonde mullet goes really well with my flechette-covered wings. Oh, it's not just you. I apparently have a type, and that type is much fancier hair than me. T does have very fancy hair. T has extremely fancy hair. Anyway, speaking of people with, in one case, no hair, and in one case, fancy hair... That's right. In a somewhat metaphorical scene that is actually also a real scene taking place, Professor X and Bishop are trying to clean up and put together the pieces of the Ready Room, which we last saw during the Phalanx Covenant when Banshee blew it up to protect the data stored therein from the Phalanx. And I really appreciate that Bishop is like, dude, you didn't back it up? And Xavier actually has an explanation, which is, well, it was a lot of really private data about the mutant underground, and I didn't want anyone to, you know, have a chance of getting found out. I'm not saying it's a good excuse, but I like that there's at least some kind of excuse. Because, come on, that's IT 101. That's IT, like, 001. Back your shit up. But it's not Revolution 101. Revolution 101 is... Keep that shit secure, don't make backup copies, 
In fact, ideally just memorize it. And this is why I work in IT and not Revolution. Maybe I should work in Revolution. I mean, clearly not. Mm, well, valid. Now, you say there are no backups, and that may not be true. There are no deliberate backups. There is, however, a mutant whose abilities involve ambient absorption of anything transmitted digitally. Anything at all, ever, somehow. This is ridiculous. But anyway, this this guy is Comcast, spelled with two M's. This is uh, Garbad Bashor, whom we last saw, I believe, in X-Men Unlimited number three, helping some dude avoid death by Sabretooth. He's also going to turn out much, much, much later to have been Professor X's secret student for a while. But that, again, is irrelevant, although it might tie into why Professor X says, well, he might have it, but I don't want him to know that he might have it, and I don't trust him, so... Let's just pretend it's lost for good. Wait, so Comcast can capture all data being transmitted digitally? Oh, man. Listeners, Comcast has all of your browsing history, even if you were in private browsing mode. And I just realized that based on his name being shared with an ISP, that statement probably still stands. Well, it would be Google if he were created today. But um, that, that means that, among other things, he is aware that while researching this episode, I definitely looked up details of how hawks do sex, and I hope, listeners, that you are deeply grateful. The sacrifices we make for all of you. It's surprisingly boring. Like, it's silly because it's bird sex, but it's basically run-of-the-mill bird sex. At least you can say cloaca. That's a funny word. I'm glad that I have brought this to your day. Speaking of, that brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 319 titled Untapped Potential. And as you can tell from the title, this issue is clearly about hawk sex. It's written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Steve Epting, inked by Dan Green and Tim Townsend, and colored by Steve Bucolato, Paul Becton, and Matt Hicks. I want to talk to you listeners about a type of retcon that we don't cover a lot, and that is an emotional retcon, or at least a flashback that adds new resonance. I'm bringing this up because there's a single panel in, I believe, Iceman number three that doesn't change the history. It doesn't change anything that happened here, but it just makes this entire issue exponentially sadder. Oh, you mean Cena Grace's Iceman series from a couple years ago? Yeah, and this is, this is an issue where Iceman and... The White Queen are going through Iceman's mind, and Iceman stops at sort of an, an iceberg where there's a tiny version of him, you know, maybe eight years old, building a sandcastle, and sort of crouches down, smiling a little wryly, and says, Hey, little me, here's a life hack. Build that moat as deep as you want. The tide always takes the castle. Oh, man. And given what sandcastles mean in this story, well, let's talk about that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that panel is specifically a callback to this issue. But regardless, and I mean it's it's a it's a panel that kind of hits like a sledgehammer even without that context and and damn it, Cena, if you need me, Miles, I will be over here just having some feelings. Fair. Yeah, this issue is is rough in general, but it's a really good one. Okay, so what's the framing device? What's the story? Okay. Framing is that Rogue is on the way to her own miniseries, but on the way, she's going to take Bobby and, and go with him to a family dinner back at the Drake house, which, as we know by now, is something that Bobby does not really ever look forward to because his dad is terrible. 
They stop at the beach on the way, and Bobby builds an intricate fantasy city out of ice. When Rogue asks him about it, he mentions, well, he used to build sandcastles, but his dad discouraged it. What's really brutal here, I think really well done, is that Bobby completely recognizes how cruel and gratuitous his father was in, you know, telling him that building sandcastles, doing things that are imaginary is, is useless and pointless and a waste. He's still really deeply internalized it. You know, when, when Rogue responds to, to that anecdote. How old were you when you realized he was wrong? Whoever said he was wrong. Oh, man. Bobby. And from there, they head to the house, but stay talking in the car outside for a while. I gotta say, man, the experience specifically of loitering on the beach and then in the car to avoid the family thing you don't want to deal with is deeply, deeply relatable. Yeah, and that's even when Bobby's coming home voluntarily. He says he needs a break, he needs something normal after all this Emma stuff. But the only thing he can think of is the family that's its own kind of trauma and its own kind of trouble. Well, something we're going to get to later in this issue is that Bobby has projected and idealized a lot of good stuff onto his family that's not necessarily there. Like his sense of what they should be and what they are versus what he actually experiences when he encounters them are pretty different. And as they are loitering, and Iceman's talking to Rogue about how, you know, Gambit's really being a dick to her these days. William, complete asshole, Drake, comes out to yell at them for doing car sex in the middle of the street. Okay, that is obviously not sex that they're doing. Wait, is... have we seen William Drake and Shinobi Shaw in the same place at the same time? No, I think he is very specifically your mom's old across-the-street neighbor. Wait, do you mean the one that used to skinny dip in her backyard and so we couldn't build a treehouse because we might see her? Oh, I thought that was your next-door neighbor. I'm talking about the one who was deeply scandalized when my car was parked overnight in front of your house. Oh, right, right, right. Could be. I, we, yeah, I don't think the Drakes retired to Sarasota, but I'm not entirely certain that they didn't. They probably did. Frickin' Drakes. Frickin' Sarasota. <laughs> Anyway, in addition to being fairly prudish, Bobby's dad is also a racist asshole. Um, but the scene where he's really racist is entirely visually defined by a series of panels where Bobby is extremely angrily spooning mashed potatoes into, onto plates. And it's amazing and fairly hilarious. And I don't think it's supposed to be hilarious, but it is, and I really love it. I don't know, it felt kind of deliberate to me, just the idea that Bobby is so upset, but in this domestic setting, he's stuck in this role, so if he's going to be spooning mashed potatoes, he's going to be spooning them angrily, damn it. Yeah, mashed potato rage, if you are not, like, throwing them, and even kind of if you are, is, is fairly fundamentally impotent rage. So, about William being racist, I think it's important to note that he is literally legitimately racist. Like, he talks about how Bobby keeps bringing, you know, Italian girls or Japanese girls or whatever home— and he conflates Rogue obviously being a mutant with that. To him, anybody who's not waspy, essentially, they're not okay. Oh, people have asked how to address racism and look at intersections and how mutation interacts with that. This is a pretty good way to do it, honestly. This is, this is a guy who we established very firmly as not just metaphorically racist, but actually super racist, who's also aggressively anti-mutant. Totally. And for whom being anti-mutant falls into that specific pattern. 
Man, I always feel really bad for Bobby's mom because you know that he is the dude who says really wildly anti-Semitic stuff and then is like, don't worry, honey, you're not like that and thinks it's a compliment. Oh, oh God, he totally is. He super is. But on the topic of Bobby's mom, she's really interesting to me here because she just sort of lets William do whatever, but at the same time, she sort of enables him being a jerk like her tactic seems to be just let him say whatever he's gonna say it's gonna be easier that way like i'm taken back to my cringily favorite line from the old 1984 iceman miniseries where she tells iceman this kind of aggravation it could kill him please bobby don't kill your father have you seriously not heard real people do that kind of thing I don't think I have, and I feel very fortunate. That's a common trope because it's a common thing that people do. It's both a sort of passive-aggressive, you know, don't create conflict. Bobby's mother is mostly extremely conflict-diverse. Like, she just nopes out of pretty much every any conversation where there's any kind of argument. Um, but also, I feel like it's a way of diffusing and sort of skirting around mostly very violent mostly violent or violently angry men in domestic situations with stuff like that it's 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 saying you know you know think of your father's blood pressure not think of your father's tendency to rage out and emotionally torture all of us because you can't really you can't really pull that into the argument if if your goal is to de-escalate but it's it's the you know look at the possible consequences of this and recognize that you are the one of the two people in this situation who has any potential of de-escalating it. It's entirely, entirely a redirection of responsibility in really unfair ways. It's one that goes very, very heavily with a very specific sort of 50s waspy ideal of how family dynamics should work and especially how gender dynamics within families should work. Um, and it's really fucked up and sad. And so much of who Bobby Drake has been and who he becomes, like, you can trace it back to his past. You can trace it back to any kind of difference, any kind of uniqueness or individuality or especially non-standard way of being. Like, that's always been a negative thing in his family. It's always been something to be ashamed of, to try not to do, and that's going to lead to conflict. That's going to lead to his dad getting mad and his mom getting upset and him just being judged hard, and it sucks. Well, his dad reinforcing the lesson that whatever he does, he's going to be punished for it, and his mom reinforcing the lesson that whatever he does, it's not worth his dad's anger. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's a set of circumstances where it's pretty easy to see how someone could reasonably, you know, even notwithstanding massive social pressure and conditioning, basically stay in low-key denial about being gay until their 30s. Mm-hmm. Or I guess late 20s, since Marvel heroes are perpetually 29. So Bobby and Rogue just eventually say, you know what, the hell with this, and leave. Although Rogue, who has not been raised in a passive-aggressive New England Wasp household, has some choice parting words for Mr. Drake. Maybe this isn't my place to say this, Mr. Drake. But over the years, Bobby has told me a lot about you. He said you was an honest man, a hard worker, a veteran of war, and a loving husband. Maybe it was just because he didn't know, for sure, before today. But he never mentioned you were a bigot. 
Good job, Rogue. I feel like Bobby has always a little bit known. I mean, I'm thinking of the way his dad treated Opal Tanaka back in the day. I'm thinking of, like, every interaction with his dad in the original Iceman miniseries. But yeah, I think this was what got Bobby to finally admit to himself what he's kind of known all along. Yeah, there's no fucking way Bobby Bobby didn't already know his dad was a bigot. Um, At this point, they retreat back to the beach, uh, stopping to get fast food on the way, which is a detail I really like here. And Bobby builds a sandcastle, and it's really bittersweet and sad, and sort of talks about how his whole life he's been the person who tried to accept and include everyone, which isn't entirely true, but it's sort of how he sees himself and how he's tried to be. And he always assumed that he got that from his dad, and in retrospect, what's very clear is that he was basically projecting. He was trying to project his own good qualities back on his dad to make his dad someone he could respect and relate to and want to please for reasons other than not incurring his wrath. Yeah. And during all of this, Rogue listens and she responds and she helps him build the sandcastle. Like she passes him plastic spoons from the fast food to help do so. And it's really nice. And what I really appreciate, because what we're seeing here is the beginning of what's going to be a pretty big deal friendship between Iceman and Rogue. Like this is going to continue and be focal. I really appreciate that it's not always going to be in this direction. Like, in this case, yeah, it's the two of them dealing with Bobby shit, but the two of them are going to deal with Rogue shit later on, too. And it makes me sad that that's one of the friendships in X-Men that's kind of been forgotten over the years, because I love these two characters together. Later on, he's going to hook up with her mom, so that's going to be a little weird. Yeah. Yeah, totally is. But, uh, eh, well, X-Men. But meanwhile, back in Manhattan, speaking of hooking up... Well, in Weird Romance, Warren and Betsy are reveling, in fact, in the surprising straightforwardness of their relationship compared to its context, as as Betsy says as they're, they're, you know, happily kissing on a rooftop. It's not supposed to happen like this. Aren't we obligated to whine and fret and come up with one reason after another why we shouldn't be together? And Archangel responds, Of course. And I should reveal I'm your uncle's clone from an alternate reality. Ooh, and you're supposed to die and come back to life a few dozen times. And then they make out midair. Which does actually at least vaguely reflect hawk courtship rituals. Please note, by the way, as I mentioned, I looked up actual hawk mating so that I could make jokes about it here, and it is surprisingly dull. Um, I mean, as within the spectrum of bird sex, which is all pretty silly. I did come up with one context in which it's not, but it's so ridiculous that it's going to ruin this relationship if I bring it up here, so... Oh, I wouldn't want to retroactively ruin a 90s comic relationship. Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. So the other complicated couple we explore in this issue is Xavier and Dream Magneto, sort of, but we're going to get to that part later in a different episode where it fits better. We haven't forgotten, don't worry. And boy, is there a lot to unpack there. Meanwhile, though, let's go to the issue that I've really been waiting for, X-Men number 39, Birds of a Feather, written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Matt Ryan, colored by Kevin Summers, Marie Javins, and Digital Chameleon. And as its title implies, it's all about hawks. Listeners, this is Hawk Talk. Well, you know, different birds, or bird people, or whatever. But we don't start with that, we start with... Hey, it's Philip Summers. You know, Grandpa Summers, Corsair's dad, Scott and Alex's granddad. He's flying through the fiery skies of World War II, dodging his fighter jet through the Germans' gunfire and taking them out, surviving to live another day. 
Something I love about this scene, I've mentioned before that Nicieza, in addition to very much having his own voice, has a very good grasp on specific Claremont motifs and ways to bring them back that feel very, very genuine. And here he does that by making sure we know specifically that it's not just any old plane Philip is flying, it is a P-51 Mustang. Ah, the X-Men. Stories about bigotry, bright colors, space opera, and the names of aircraft. I want to give a shout out in this scene to our army of colorists because the way this flashback slash dream scene is done is wonderful. Like everything in the background and Philip himself are this purple tinged gray, the German planes and base are red on black, Philip's plane and its gunfire and bombs are bright orange. And it just really adds this sort of larger than life simplicity to the whole scene that really fits in a way how Philip thinks about his past. One of the general conceits of coloring flashbacks in comics is that you desaturate them and you make them bluish or cool colors. And this is the exact opposite. And all of the things that sort of take it away from that standard are the things that make it work so beautifully. And the narration works really well, too. Because, again, this is just sort of a general flashback slash dream. This isn't a specific experience. This is just Philip's past and how that factors into his identity. Another successful mission means he's that much closer to surviving this mess. Then he'll go home, hold Deb tight in his arms, and warm the chill off the frigid Alaska nights. And every morning, Philip Summers will rev up the engines, lift himself up and over the canopy of trees which stretch as far as the eye can see, and fly high until the day he dies. This is the first time we've really gotten into Philip Summers' head. Like, he's been around here and there occasionally, you know, like Madeline Pryor was his employee back in the day, for instance. But this is the first time we've gotten to know him as a person, and Nicieza so immediately gives us an idea of who this guy is. And so when in the flashback dream, a plume of smoke rises from the destroyed German base, and that transitions in the next panel to full color, present day, a plume of smoke coming out of the forest, and we realized that Philip has been flying and he crashed his plane, there's just this sudden, like, heart-in-your-throat sort of, oh no... And for me, at least, part of that is because Philip's love of flying specifically is something that's instantly, that instantly relates and connects to both Chris and Scott. Like, we knew it was something they shared. We didn't really think of it as a more extensive family thing, even though we knew that Philip and Deborah had, had a, a you know, small plane shipping company until this point. Speaking maybe of family... Adam X, the X-Treme, is nearby. He's been on his mission to, I don't know, find himself, find a place in the world, uh, have a lot of metal that's not very good. Okay, Adam isn't actually connected to new metal. I should stop making fun of him. I love Adam X, the Extreme. But the point is, he smells smoke. And even though he's on this mission to figure out who he's going to be in this world, he runs to help. And I love the way Terry Dodson draws Adam X. This is easily my favorite visual for Adam X. As much as it's the least like silly 90s, like it works so well. There's like there's a fine line between New Metal Frontman and Alien Outsider, and Dodson is on the correct side of it, which is the the latter, the Alien Outsider part. Yeah, this is an Adam X who looks eerier and more alien than he previously has without really changing that much physically. Like just that stylistic shift makes such a big difference. He's also very, very fast. Like we knew he was extremely spry, but this dude runs at like 30 to 50 miles per hour through hip deep snow. Yeah, the narration. Okay, the narration is great, but think about this for a sec. 
Within minutes, he has covered the six miles between Highway 4 and the Downed Plain. If the knee-high snow or the thick trees of the Canadian Yukon wilderness pose a problem, he doesn't pay them much attention. Okay, let's be generous and assume that minutes actually refers to nine minutes. I feel like that's the, the highest number you can say before you start, you know, calling it something else. That means he's running at 40 miles per hour through a snowy forest. That means he's running at a minimum of 40 miles per hour. If it takes minutes, plural, it means it has to take at least two minutes. But it is at least vaguely possible that he's running at 180 miles per hour. I thought his power was just setting people's blood on fire. He also runs very fast through snow. I guess so. But I don't know. I I love it. Like, as much as it is silly... It works. And I'm even, okay, one little detail I like, even the fact that Adam is still wearing his sort of trademark backward baseball cap, something about the way Dodson draws him in this this entire issue, really, like, it's not just a silly 90s affectation. Like, to me, it almost implies it's some sort of a, a talisman, almost. Like, this thing he's wearing to try to be a little more human, to try to fit something that's just so prosaic but is perpetual? I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I feel like if we can't read too much into Adam X the Extreme, then our entire podcast is pointless. Well, there's a point where he specifically grabs it to save it. Like, it's clearly important to him. His whole outfit is, I think baseball cap included, pretty much looks like he could have gotten it out of a random episode of Beverly Hills 90210. Like, it's very, very 90s protagonist. Specifically very 90s adult playing a teenager protagonist, if that makes sense. It does, and honestly, I think that fits Adam really, really well. He didn't grow up on Earth, as we'll eventually find. Yeah, likewise, but what I was going to say is that it's contrived. All of it feels a little bit contrived and a little bit sort of secondhand in terms of being someone else's style, but the baseball cap is sort of the thing he clings to, and I really like that. I do, too. So... Adam does get to the crashed plane, and yeah, it's Philip's plane. And one little detail I like is the plane and the fire around it are colored the same shade of bright orange that they were in Philip's dream flashback. You are right, and while that may be symbolic, I actually just took it at face value and assumed that it was a restored Mustang, because we knew at least that Chris liked to restore old World War II planes, so it kind of seemed like a logical jump for me. Oh, true, but like the fact that it's covered so solid orange, like it's it adds that little bit of unreality, that little bit of connection. It's great. Yeah, that makes sense. So Adam grabs the unconscious Philip and throws the two of them away from the explosion. So, you know, as much as this is a more serious take on Adam X, the extreme, it's still a little extreme. He does not snowboard at any point during this story, which is a little sad. But there is this great series of panels as the two of them roll down the mountain. And what really helps here is the lettering, the captioning, because there are these irregular diagonal caption boxes with just like two or three words in each that are tumbling down the mountain with Adam. It really adds to that sense of chaos, that sense of even somebody as competent as Adam being totally out of control. It's a nice little comic booky touch. Yeah, it's also a great way to use lettering to guide view and tone and pacing. Totally. But after they land in a heap, it becomes pretty clear they're kind of fucked. And they both are. They're both pretty badly hurt at this point. The narration says, It's cold. Night is coming. He has no idea how far it is to the nearest town. Alone, a strange man on a strange world, with a stranger in his arms. What a lonely way to die. This is a survival story. And we've covered one of those not too long ago, X-Men Unlimited number one, where Scott and Aurora and Xavier are trapped in the Antarctic is, is one of those as well. 
But this is a quiet survival story. There's no giant snowstorm crashing everything around. There's no Sienna blaze electromagnetically something or othering. It's just them in nature. It's Adam trying to save this old guy he's never met who's probably dying, even though it's going to be impossible to do so. It's also all about the victory of compassion. It's kind of the opposite of a Jack London story in that it's about people facing the elemental cold of the Arctic North in impossible circumstances, and no one eats anyone else. It's true, it's true. Uh, well, okay, not exactly Arctic, Arctic North. I mean, they're in Alaska? I don't think they're past the Arctic Circle. I don't know much about geography. The nearly Arctic North. And eventually Philip does wake up and explains to the guy that saved him, yeah, he just wanted to fly one more time before his eyes gave out and he could never do so again, and it didn't work out so well. This is this is a little bit of an angel move, if less self-consciously suicidal. <laughs> yeah, well. And Philip says that Adam looks kind of familiar, but then all blurry people look alike. But we are just hinting again and again and again at Adam X being the third Summers brother, at the two of them actually being related and this chance meeting being that much more unlikely and significant. So I thought about that a lot while reading this issue. And one of the things I like about it is that it's equally poignant but in very different ways, if that is or if that is not the case. And the dynamic between the characters is equally revelatory if in different ways, whether or not that's the case. A big part of that is, is, is Philip. Philip is very wry and matter-of-fact and gentle in ways that I don't think Adam has really encountered before. Yeah, I mean, he's mainly dealt with fucking X-Force. <laughs> yeah, you don't get much further from X-Force than this. Philip Summers is the opposite of X-Force. You heard it here first. So he's very nice and has reasonably sized pecs. Exactly. No pouches at all. And their dynamic, it's established very quickly. Adam is, he's tough, he's competent, he's generous but taciturn, and Philip has this wry but kind sense of humor that just meshes really well with Adam and what he's been missing. And I love the way they introduce themselves to each other. As Adam says, I'm a traveler. A wanderer searching for his home. And Philip replies, You're flying in circles and I'm crashing to the ground. Some pair we make, eh? And the family references keep coming because Philip says that this guy that saved him, Adam, reminds Philip of his grandson. A good boy. Different, he is. Him and his friends. Scared me at first a little. But I learned they were just different. Nothing wrong with that. There are a whole lot of people on this world, Adam, who feel they don't belong, that they're not a proper part of things. Seems to be a part of being human. Is it, sir? Because, yeah, Adam's not fully human. It's part of why he feels he doesn't belong. But Philip is such a good guy. Like, we know from Adam's narration that there's basically no chance that Philip is going to survive his injuries and survive the cold. He's just a human, and he's old, and he's severely injured. But we really want him to. We want this to work out. And because Philip Summers is a relatively minor character, like, there are actual stakes here. He might for real die. He doesn't. And not only does he not die, but he's specifically, he and Deborah are specifically going to go on to effectively, at least for a while, adopt Nate Gray when he's in the 616, which I think 
I'm not going to say this foreshadows, but I think this very much sets him up as someone who would do that. Yeah, I completely agree. But right now, that question of survival is still in question because despite Adam building a shelter out of, I don't know, something, and lighting a fire and them taking off their shirts because bear with me because when somebody's dying of hypothermia skin-to-skin contact helps a lot and adam as partially an alien has really really warm skin but none of that's helping adam is positive that philip is going to die and philip is positive that philip is going to die and finally they they go outside for a bit and Philip says, well, I'm going to die anyway. You're clearly from somewhere else. Gets gets Adam to, to talk about coming from space. And it's like, finally, can you take me outside and at least show me the star where you came from? Because I've always wanted to go to space. I'm clearly never going to get to. If this is it, I'd at least like to have, you know, that frame of reference for someone who has been able to travel in ways and places that I can't. And this is where we see just that quiet compassion from Adam. Like, we've mostly seen him yelling and setting people's blood on fire, which, don't get me wrong, those are very important things to do, and I don't want to disparage them. But Philip Summers isn't X-Force. He's not a supervillain. He's not caught up in all this stuff. He's just a guy. He's just a pilot who's fascinated by the stars that Adam came from. And I really like this. I like that they each kind of want what the other has. Like, Philip wants so much to fly. He wants so much to see all the things he's never going to see that Adam has seen. And Adam just wants the quiet connection and family life and stability that Philip has. And they're not jealous of each other. That draws them closer together. We've only really seen him in context of confrontations. And I really love the way that this fleshes him out as a character, the extent to which when you shift him out of that context, he is this sweet, wistful, and in a lot of ways, very, very young kid. He is. And the thing is, like, what we're seeing in this, if you just had this story described to you in broad strokes, like, Adam is kind of a cliche. He's the loner outcast who's really such a good guy secretly at heart. But the thing is, Philip is so immediately established as a sympathetic great dude and he's our point of view character and so we believe philip that adam really is that deep and good and worthwhile of a person as he describes that that is a good strategy that is a good way to get a character like adam x to be taken seriously is have somebody the audience likes take him seriously i want the what if where adam's still not the third summer's brother but he does stick around and basically moves in with and gets de facto adopted by Philip and Deborah Summers. He could cut up firewood so well for them, now that Mr. Sinister has probably moved away after he was revealed as being Mr. Sinister. He totally could, and he could he would he would generally be super helpful and super patient and super cool. And I feel like in general actually Adam X would would work really well with the elderly. He would. Oh Adam, you dear sweet bladed boy. Well, after seeing the star that Adam's from, Philip does pass out. He is clearly going to die. He's clearly freezing to death. But Adam X has the best plan ever. The stupidest best plan ever. Adam takes a knife and gently cuts a couple of cuts into Philip's skin and uses his mutant power to oxygenate people's blood, to basically set their blood on fire or electricity or whatever, to keep Philip warm. He uses the most 90s ridiculous superpower ever to save a dying old man in the snow. And Jay, this is everything I love about comic books distilled into like two panels. And I am so happy right now. 
it is specifically a really sensible way to warm someone up if you have the capacity to do that. I just love that this incredibly, like, heartwarming scene of this guy doing everything to save someone he's just met is about somebody gently setting somebody else's blood on fire. It makes no sense that he goes through the palms. It's fine. I will forgive this scene any possible trespass. And it works because in the morning when the search helicopters are out, they find Philip and he's alive and he's alone. That said, and and Gene and Scott have come to help look for him, but he was found by the time the Blackbird arrives. So they're at the hospital with him and Gene runs back up to the room saying she's forgotten something because she's realized there's someone else there who wasn't before who snuck in. Yeah, because, you know, telepath. And there's Adam sitting with the unconscious Philip, who we've learned from the doctors is now blind. His sight is indeed fully gone. Yeah, or at least is is gone to the extent that he's never going to fly again or that it's that it's pretty much gone. It's it's not, I, I think, fully blind is sort of an odd term to use just because that's a state for which there are many, many, many practical gradations. Well, anyway, he's never going to see the sky or the stars again. So Adam, quickly realizing for some reason that Gene is a telepath, says, A, please don't tell anyone that I was here, and B, could you use your telepathy to show this guy something from my memories? What he specifically wants to show Philip is a cool space battle. It is this glorious science fiction-y space battle with all of these Shi'ar ships blowing each other up and zooming around. And I guess this is where we first have it fully straight up confirmed that, yes, Adam is from the Shi'ar Empire and may or may not be Shi'ar himself. But it's this wonderful mirror of the dream sequence slash flashback that Philip had at the beginning of the issue from World War II. And the narration is similarly pulpy, describing it as this sort of harrowing, death-defying adventure. It is perfect and as much as it's this silly action scene what a freaking gift for adam to give to philip to have him see not only the sky not only flight one more time but the stars he always wanted to adam has only known philip for a matter of hours less than a day and he gets philip in that regard that's a thoughtful gift when you really know the person who you're getting it for would want it but could never get it themselves a space battle a space battle. And it's sweet. And honestly, I think that's a microcosm of why this issue works so well. We have this over-the-top silly thing, and it plays completely straight. Like, it's a genuinely heartwarming interaction. I love this issue so much, Jay. Like, this is easily the best Adam X issue, and it makes me so sad and angry that Adam just falls off the fucking map after this. This is an issue that I gotta say, man, so... Something I think about a lot and got asked in an, in an interview earlier today and just didn't have an answer for. And now do is the, what would you pitch if you could pitch an X-Men series to Marvel? And I think my answer is like a weird auteur Adam X solo series. Well, anyway, after that, Adam leaves and says to Jean, like, hey, you know, please don't tell anyone I was here. I'm, I'm a private person. And indeed, she doesn't tell Scott, Adam's possible, possible brother. But it's not entirely private, because in the last panel, or rather the second-to-last panel, we see this scene on a monitor with a hand nearby, the hand of Eric the Red. And that scene we see in another monitor with another hand nearby, the hand of 
Mr. Sinister. And this is a direct reference to the end of Uncanny X-Men number 97, where we saw that exact same thing with Stephen Lang and Emperor Deken, right as all this space nonsense was really getting started. This issue got even better. This is... Oh, this is such a delightful issue. It's it's a good story on its own, but it's full of these really, really delightful continuity nods, like that one, which, I mean, it takes work to catch and recognize. Oh, so good. Listeners, like, we're not saying you have to read every issue we cover, or even any issues we cover, but this one, it it's really worth your time. It's lovely. Not everyone agrees with me, and they can have their opinions, but, but I'm right. And... This 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 isn't Adam X's like last story appearance, but it's one of his last, and then he just sort of shows up in in cameo jokes after that. Yeah, he's in a couple issues of Captain Marvel, like Fabian mentioned when we interviewed him a while back. Um, and I want to at least read those. I don't know if we're gonna cover them, but that's kind of it. After that, he's just a joke. And with all of the potential we see in this story, that is a damn shame. I never thought I would say this, but Adam X the Extreme deserved better. Hell yeah. People who also deserve wonderful things are you, our listeners, and you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Professor X is probably the most famous fictional character in a wheelchair, yet writers constantly have him regain the ability to walk, and in fact the last time he was in a wheelchair in the comics was 2005. What does this mean for paraplegic representation, and do you believe this says something about how writers treat people with a disability? What this says to me is that a lot of the people in positions of creative or editorial power in this subscribe pretty heavily, as a lot of people in popular culture and entertainment and culture in general do, to the medical model of disability. That it's something to approach from the perspective of fixing it. Why would you have a character in a wheelchair when you could have a character who could walk, etc.? Now, we know by now, I hope we know by now, I hope that I have, I have um, harped on this enough on this podcast that we know by now that that's kind of some bullshit. Um... And I'm actually going to suggest an alternate reading that I think is a lot better and a lot more interesting, and while it's one that they haven't always leaned into, it's one that they have actually explored to some extent during some of the eras when Xavier could walk and it was clearly temporary, or when he was adjusting to it. And that's that a lot of wheelchair users and a lot of disabled people have varying degrees of ability and of, of direct mobility. Like, that's something that can vary very substantially for people in very short periods of time based on tasks, based on contexts, or even over long periods of time. You know, there are people who you who are who use wheelchairs primarily for months at a time, can walk for months at a time, end up going back in periodically. And that's that's something that's very individual. And when that's been an aspect of Xavier's experience that was actually explored and sort of his relationship to those things, I think it's been pretty cool. I'd like to see them do it more explicitly, and this time they pretty much just straight um, ignored and wrote around that. But that, I think, would be the way to sort of put it back. I think in a lot of ways, too, what you're seeing in the same ways that the stuff I talked about last episode with with fat bodies reflects marginalization and lack of of lack of of representation in popular culture and so absence within the spectrum of what 
people coming into making that stuff think of as the things that they should represent. You see that a lot with disabled bodies too. Like disabled bodies are specifically have been hidden and marginalized historically. And I think to the point that we see them or we are sort of conditioned to see them as counter to what superheroes represent. That's a problem that shouldn't be the case. And especially with mutants, especially and so much with mutants, um, it's something I'd like to see explored more and better within text. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right, Jay, that X-Men is pretty perfectly positioned to explore that. Like, this is a, a series and a framework and a metaphor slash opportunity for intersectionality where you could totally do that. And so it's disappointing to see it done so seldom with Professor Xavier when it could be. Well, and I mean, going going further with the mutation and disability, and it's a metaphor, but also not a metaphor, a lot of mutation mutations and I'll qualify I'll jump in with my not a lawyer qualification here from what I can tell and from what how as I understand it a lot of mutations would fall under the ADA that's a really good point I hadn't thought of that yeah yeah no a lot of them would and that's true of, of a lot of superpowers in general but especially of mutations like for for instance I mean my my go-to example would be what happens when blindfold or if blindfold wants to go to a standard college how does she sit for exams that's a really good point you know she's precognitive how do you accommodate that that also directly impacts her ability to communicate verbally x-men could go in so many fascinating directions you know how does cyclops what does cyclops do for a passport photo you can't wear glasses in a passport photo of any kind which is a much obviously a much more minor example but you know what what how how do you how do you work out workplace accommodations for Martha Johansson? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely not in HR guidebooks that I've seen, but that's the thing like superhero superhero universes are a way to show real life concepts in over the top ways and they totally could here. Yeah, well and this is also a rare situation where it's not an allegory where the powers that they're showing, where the mutations they're showing aren't an allegory for disability. They're just expansions of our sense of, of you know, disabilities that are possible. And so I'd like to see that leaned into more, and I would like to see more actual, you know, representation of, of human disability in comics. There's not a lot of it. And unfortunately, it tends to be a thing that writers sort of try to erase or write around. I think one of the most egregious examples is is Daredevil and also Echo, who's appeared in the same comic. Um, and that's something, again, that we've seen sort of go back and forth in terms of how writers handled it over the years. I will point to the, actually the current uh, the current run and also to most of the, the Mark Wade-written stuff as doing that really, really well. Um, ditto the, the fraction Aya uh, Hawkeye. Um, but again, also neither of those are are characters who are who are visibly disabled or who are wheelchair users, and that's something that, yeah, I think I think the the basic answer to the question is that what it says is that there's a whole whole lot of ableism in the world that is reflected and amplified within the part of the world that makes comics and superhero comics specifically, and that our sense of what defines a superhero tends to tie into that in really unfortunate and unpleasant ways that should be confronted. And also that the medical model of disability is some bullshit. Moving on. 
Uh, also on Tumblr, Emma Frost's Boston accent, great username, predicts a resurgence in the general visibility of X-Men and asks, should the franchise once again hit 90s levels of popularity, what tie-in products would you like to see? Oh man, so I always really wanted the X-Men clothing line that was advertised in like the era of comics that we're covering right now. I say bring that stuff back, but like bring it back the way it was. Oversized Wolverine jerseys, oversized denim jackets with X logos, freaking jams covered in Jim Lee art. Jay, do you remember jams? Like those really long baggy shorts that were all colorful and stuff? Vividly. Maybe I just want jams. I guess I could just get jams. Uh, You can. You have that power now as an adult. The jams can be yours. You could just get shorts for very tall men, Miles. Huh. Fiendish. Well, anyway... I also really miss the tie-in comics from when we were kids. Like, we had Pizza Hut tie-in comics, which we've certainly talked about before. We had Hardy's tie-in comics. So, let's update that shit. I want Popeyes to be giving away Gambit comics with those chicken sandwiches. I want Wolverine and Alpha Flight encouraging Canadians to get out the vote. I want to see Laura and Gabby Kinney as the new face of kid-focused PSAs. Although, I guess they'd both be sort of negative examples, because, you know, healing factor and very reckless. But, uh, still... Depends on what the PSA is about. Hmm. Clones, probably. I feel like Gabby could do some good PSAs on, you know, standing up for yourself and and coming into your identity and pelican statues. And raising a wolverine. Like, an actual wolverine. Um, I, yeah, I, I will, I will back up the, the clothing line, clothing, cool clothing and accessories that are kind of fan stuff and kind of in-universe stuff. Like, mostly jackets. I want their, oh, denim jackets with back patches. That's what I want. Hell yeah. Uh, um, I also want there to be a Warren Worthington III human-scale falconry equipment line that is clearly for fetish stuff, but is marketed exclusively as falconry equipment and exclusively advertised to falconers. I guess that's another thing that the Marvel Universe doesn't explore enough. All the weird fetishy stuff that would probably come from superheroes existing. They kind of skirt past it occasionally. Yeah. But in all seriousness, I would actually legitimately love, like, Krakoa vine decals that you could put around the doorways inside your house. How cool would that be? Oh, shit. That would be super cool and also super creepy. Plushy demon bear. Oh, that would be amazing. Uh, Also, Marvel never did get around to releasing that Dazzler tie-in album back in the 70s when the character debuted. So, Marvel, it's not too late. Dazzler's still around. Pop music still exists. I I guess those things are definitely true. Now, in the meantime, what we have is a much simpler product. As you know, this is an entirely listener-supported podcast. Some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. So let's hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. Are you truly ready to vanquish your inner demons, Courtney Smith? To face your fears and the ghosts of your past and any immediately adjacent pasts that may have overlapped? Can you stand face to face with Margaret Jean and tell them, voice and heart steady, that you are truly prepared? Of course you can't. Have you even made a list yet? And then we're changing things up a little bit. I think Miles Miles decided that today he just he really wanted to do Adam X thanks. So take it away, Adam X the Extreme. I had some good times snuggling shirtlessly with that pilot guy. But now he's with his family, and I'm on my own again. You don't want to get mixed up with a guy like me. I'm a loner, Dottie. A rebel. But by Shara and Kithri, wait a parsec? 
David Jacobson, are you a loner too? Do you seek connection despite your tortured soul? Maybe I can help, my friend. It can help to clothe yourself in the garments and customs of those with whom you want to connect. So here, take this backward baseball cap. No, don't turn it around. And these blades. And these blades. And these other blades. And Norm, you're just looking for a way to belong in this strange land, too. It's too early for you to reveal who your brothers might or might not be, so you'll need another way to verbally identify yourself. All right, starting today, my friend, you are Norm X, the Extreme. Wait, you have a doctorate? Okay, Dr. Norm X, the Dr. Tream. Okay, loneliness calls, so come out of here. But don't worry, I'll see you all soon. My plotline is only just getting started. Do you think Adam X has a lot of what start out intending to be grinder hookups and turn into him just like trying to have really earnest conversations? I do. And that's so endearing. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, whose new album Moon Talk you can now get on Bandcamp. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we've got Vengeance, Comas, and Grand Theft Intergalactic. As X-Factor takes the soap opera part of its job extremely seriously. 